I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 106 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and our second podcast dedicated to the 2023 Open Championship at Royal Liverpool. Today on our show, we are joined by Joe McDonnell, who will be sharing the amazing, and I mean amazing, evolution of Royal Liverpool. I can't honestly think of a better companion podcast for the 2023 Open. We go on a bit more than an hour, so let's dive in immediately. On to our show. Joe, welcome back to Talking Golf History. Thanks, Connor. Hi, good to be back. The last time you joined us on the pod, we discussed the evolution of Augusta National. And the last time I saw you, we were getting a first-hand look at Augusta National. My first real question is, how does studying the evolution of Augusta National differ from playing Augusta National? <laughs> <laughs> studying versus playing. Um, studying is a lot more fun, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was awful playing. Um, you can imagine the difference. You know the difference. It's, um, I know the difference. I wonder if the listeners know the difference. Okay. Um, the, the, the experience on the ground at Augusta is, is like nothing else that I've experienced in golf ever. Um, the, the, the package, not just playing holes that you, you feel very, very, you know, familiar with. It's much more about the whole complete day experience, uh, that goes on around it. You know, the whole thing is just a uh, singular, it's unique. Yeah. And, I tell uh, people yeah. it, it feels like, you know, it's kind of a, you're a member for a day, right? I mean, it's, it's Absolutely. not, as stodgy as people might think on that property? Not in the slightest. It was very eye-opening for me. It felt like a members club. It really did. It had all the the, the sort of trappings of a members place. Uh, people were very relaxed there. There were quite clearly friends coming and going, and there's a, a sense of community about the place that definitely is in, in keeping with the preconceptions you might have about a place like that that's so sort of, I don't know, steeped in mystique and, and is basically seen from the outside world as this stage for stage for golf. It's um, No, it's much more kind of homely than that. Anything shocking in the design? Shocking? Um, like surprising for me, to me. For me, was, I, I think playing it at least the first time was how much width actually exists on that golf course. Yes, you, loads of width. You, yeah, you think of it from the television coverage, and I, I think your brain kind of takes over to like certain shots, like 18, certainly, right? Uh, yeah. And you think yeah, of yeah. it as very narrow corridors, but it's really fairly open. I would say so. Yeah, that, it is very wide. But the thing that struck me was that, and particularly the, the sort of golf that I'm used to playing on home soil in the UK, the, the scale of the bunkers is insane. Mm -hmm. um, right. 
Uh, I mean, we'll get onto this in a bit, but Hoylake's bunkering is very small. You know, it's a very deliberate choice and, you know, it's a sort of uh, very penal in that sense. You have to play one type of shot, which is get it up very quickly and get it out of the bunker and accept your one shot penalty. Whereas the scale of the bunkers or Augusta is just in a different league. Um, and from the tee, it can play havoc with your depth perception. So, of course, Augusta being the way it is, they, they don't allow you to, to be range finding or any of that sort of thing. So actually getting a yardage and taking your caddy's advice is really important because it can look like the bunkers are a lot closer than they are because they're just so big. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah. Well, yeah. Can you share with everyone what you've been up to since our last podcast? Mm, what have I been doing? Um, you work for, uh, I, I, I assume you're still working for for an architectural firm, correct? That's right. Yeah. Having spent a long time in the software industry, um, 13 years, I finally decided it was time to go whole hog and get into golf on a full-time basis. So I now work with CDP, Clayton de Vries and Pont, the partnership. And uh, and it's been great. I joined them um, full-time at the start of this year and we've been getting our teeth into some funky projects. It's been great. And what do you get to do for them, Joe? Uh, I help them visualize concepts, uh, whether that is at uh, sort of pitch stage or the, the next phase, which is uh, once the design has been drawn up, it's getting the, uh, the members or committee or whoever it is that has sign-off to, uh, to agree to what's being proposed. So it's, it's about making compelling, um, persuasive imagery. Uh, and I specialize in a sort of 3D, 3D uh, world. So that's what I do, yeah. I was just going to jump into that. So like on social media, you're extremely well known for your three-dimensional artwork of famous courses and famous golf holes. Can you fresh everyone with how you got started down that path and maybe how they can purchase your 3D prints? Yes, I, it was a happy accident. Um, uh, labor of love. Uh, I had got uh, simultaneously into the weeds of golf history and at the same time was delving into uh, sort of the, the manipulation or use of uh, survey data um, for, for landscapes, golf courses. And in the, as I said, the, my previous role uh, within the software industry involved um, understanding that and getting really uh, deep into the science of, of survey data. And uh, in parallel, as I say, I was I was studying history and looking back at course evolutions, and that's what really got my got my juices flowing for um for for things like Augusta and and Hoylake and many other courses. And I just found it really really amazing to see how fashions and and tastes and uh, you know equipment has dictated the way that courses have have evolved and moved through through the eras, the ages. And um, yeah, that's, I just wanted new ways to, ex uh, to explore new ways of, of showing these changes. So if I could find a way that wasn't just necessarily taking a, a sort of Google aerial and putting arrows on it, you know, was there yeah. something else I could do? So I, I got really into um, manipulating um, models, really, you know, um, terrain models as they're known. And, um, and just finding, exploring new ways that I could show these things in a, a compelling fashion that wasn't just outlines of fairways but was really getting into the um the contours and the character of the landscapes and in doing that i i think i stumbled upon something that's that's recognizable perhaps unique in in this space and um and yeah it, it became something commercial uh, about three or four years ago with my um my mate jasper who you know and was on we were on previously um and yeah my my artwork can be bought at shop.evaluating.com and uh, there's a range of things that can be bought there. Okay, I have to ask you. Do you have mm -hmm. a favorite 3D model of a course and of a specific hole? Uh, yes, of a course. I'm massively bound to uh, the old course, St. Andrews. It yeah, is, uh, that's the one you yeah. guys gave me. Thank you very much. By yeah. The way. 
No worries. Uh, I've studied that multiple times. Um, I've been back for multiple revisions because I've found different things in the course, but also had different reasons to go back there. Um, a, a guy you may know called Scott McPherson, he's a golf architect. Um, he has re-released his book called The, uh, what's it called? the Evolution of St. Andrews. Yes, he's going to come on the show. Great. That's good to hear. Um, Scott's Brill. Uh, and he's obviously spent a lot of time on this book. I mean, when you look at the, the depth and the, the sort of tables and lists and the chronology and everything else that he's gone into, it is there's nothing like it. It is such a piece of work. Anyway, so, you know, um, however many years on since his first release, I think it's 15, maybe more years since he released uh, version one. He's now revised it, updated it, given it a fresh lick of paint, but also added a lot more that he's found in, in those intervening years and uh, i helped him visualize a few of uh, a few of those things so um look out for my pictures in that book if How you're fun is that very cool yeah yeah immortalized yes we got down and dirty with some great geeky uh historical stuff that he discovered on his on his journey so uh, it was fun to help visualize that that's fantastic and i remember i think i found a couple bunkers maybe for you is that right <laughs> yes, I don't know if they made it into not the book labeled? in time, but I don't know no, how unlabeled. I stumbled into that. I don't know. You know, yeah. we travel down similar paths of insanity. Absolutely, those were the bunkers just short of the principal's nose. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, you can just see the sort of footprint depressions in the fairway where they might have been. Um, was it? And we're going to dig bunker? into some of that stuff at Royal Liverpool here in a minute, right? You have yeah. some ghost bunkers out there. Lots of ghost bunkers. Yeah, it's an amazing piece of land. Where should we start? Well, let's just dive in. Uh, how did you start your research into the evolution of Royal Liverpool? How did that come about? Well, as I say, I was I, I was getting in parallel with with what I was doing at the in the software space. I was um I was getting into history because I, I moved away from Hoylake uh, uh, similar about fifteen years ago, and. being away from home I've stayed a member all all that time but I was um I was so far away from home living in London living and working there that um that by by virtue of being um so having that thing taken away from you and cut off and being on a limb I found that I was getting more and more interested in the history of the place having known it so well growing up I've been a member there since I was I think 12 or younger and uh which which makes it 30 years now since I, I first joined the club and um I knew the course so well and had obviously played it thousands of times and, uh, and the, the history of the clubhouse and everything else and all the um, memorabilia that sits around in cabinets and, and in the hallway and things, um, but never really got under the skin of it. You know, it had never grabbed me in the same way that it has now. And, um, and being so far away from the club really got my appetite going for, for diving back into it. So there've been some brilliant, um, brilliant books written by members and, and, uh, you know, fans of the club over the years. And, um, and a few of them just contain some amazing tidbits about the, the, the course and how it's changed and evolved and, and adapted. And, um, and I just got, went down that path and couldn't stop really. It, it became a, an absolute obsession. And using modern techniques, um, which I've been working on um, with my other line of work, we I'd realised that there are ways to uncover perhaps um, pieces of history about the ground that you wouldn't necessarily find in an old black and white photo. Um, or if you do, you can marry up your assumption or your guess with uh, with what you're seeing in that photo and put two and two together and then bingo, you know, you're like, oh my God, there's the proof we need. That's exactly where the bunker was because there's a great big depression in the ground still left. Um, so yeah, it's it's just been a, a great journey. <laughs> 
You know, it's, it's funny because many of us think of Lynx courses as being something that is eternal, a thing mm. that goes unchanged for like eons. And this just isn't the case. It's not the case of the old course or really anywhere, and especially not this year's host, Hoy Lake. Can you share with our listeners what existed on this land prior to there being a golf course? Let's start there. Well, even before there was any sport on the ground, it's been a, a great, it's it, true lynx land. Um, it's it's more for grazing animals, and uh, and it was a rabbit warren, um, which was uh, you know in the, in the days pre pre horse racing. Um, so the days of the Royal Hotel, which would then become the uh, the, the um, clubhouse for the for the club uh, the, in the early days, the um, the Royal Hel- Hotel was a popular destination for uh, sort of beach going uh, Victorians, and and even before that, it was um, built in the 1700s. But the um, but the Victorians made beachside uh, holidays popular in the country and uh, they were taking trains out to Hoylake. So once the rail network started taking uh, Victorians from, from cities out to the, the coast for, for holidays, that's where, um, you know, the, the Royal Hotel took off and the, the rabbit warren, which was still serving as a sort of form of income for, uh, for, for various people living around the, um, the space that is now the course, um, that rabbit warren uh, coexisted with a um, horse racing track, which was the Liverpool Hunt Club which is also where the, uh, the the Liverpool name of the golf club comes from. Um, so the Liverpool Hunt Club uh, was was a uh, popular race course in the sort of forty or fifty years preceding the the, the golf, and um, and for about I can't remember exactly how many years for about six or seven years um, golf coexisted with racing, although albeit racing was on the decline in popularity, and there were only I think maybe a, a couple, if not a handful, of race meets per year. So it wasn't really a, a big deal, um, but yes, it was a it was a race course. So do you do you actually have the outline of the old race course? I haven't seen that in any of your notes. Do you know where it existed on the course? Yeah, you can see it in the survey maps, the old ordnance survey from uh, you know pre pre nineteen hundred. It's very clear. Um, Is it was it, it like Musselbra, where it's kind of in the middle of the golf course? No, there are only a couple of holes that went across the middle of the um, of the race course. Interesting. It, uh, I mean, there's one of our quite prominent members and ex um, ex captains, Rob McBurney, is very keen for us not to to allow this uh, information that we were somehow a race course golf course. <laughs> it was um, not only was it quite a short time during which the the two shared the space, but also the race course wasn't really much of the golf course, to be honest. Um, You know, the land was used in that way, but the golf course really played actually very little over the the trodden ground. Yeah, one of our holes is called course, which is the members first, and that does share a little bit of strip of of fairway that used to be run over by the horses, but realistically it wasn't that much. Um, But no, it was uh, the golf course was played mostly over it and around it, but rather than inside it. Before we dive in a little bit further, let's get into the rabbit warren. So St. Andrews, the old course, had this similar issue. Can you just describe how what is a rabbit warren? Like what was you said they were making money. How are they making money off of these rabbits? And what essentially did these rabbits do on the land? Well, they tore great holes in it. <laughs> they certainly did. <laughs> Shredded the place. Um, you know, there would be an underground network of tunnels where they would, you know, breed um, like rabbits, the proverbial. And um, they were uh, shot and, and the, the pelts were were sold as, and it was also meat. It was a source of meat. Um, so, you know, the rabbits would leave devastation on, on the land. I mean, it would be fine if you didn't need to use the land for anything. But once golf was trying to, um, you know, 
paid its way over the land it was uh, it was a bit of an issue it would um you know crumble the ground beneath your feet and and the natural um holes the scrapes from the rabbits were then actually turned into more formalized bunkers in later years but but there was not much you could do about it really at the time it was just accepted that that was rough land you know the warren warren land and you played around it yeah i love that about st andrews that there's a whole era defined as the rabbit wars <laughs> i just I, I, you know, exactly. They wanted to get the yeah. rabbit. They were tearing up the course. So I'll dive into my first Absolutely. historical tidbit. Uh, founded in 1869, the Liverpool Golf Club became the second English course granted the royal title when Queen Victoria bestowed it the honor in 1871, thus becoming Royal Liverpool. Next question for you: Does the original nine-hole course still reside on the land that Royal Liverpool sits upon today? Yes. Um, there's very little of it left in play i think we uh just recently had a, a remodeling of our second green which is called road it's the road hole and um previously that was basically the last remaining green site from the original nine holes um but yeah it is the, the land is is just been reused but yes it's still there can you see any of those holes today like when i mean you know where they're all at right you've mapped them out yes. Have you taken the time to, say, walk those holes to see how it might have played in the beginning? Yeah, uh, I know it very well. The, um, the the closest we have to a remaining hole in its current form is our member's 18th, the stand hole, uh, named stand because it played to a green which sat in front of the old uh, racing grandstand. Um, the green was slightly to the left of where it is today, but but basically it teed off in a similar-ish position from the forward tees right in front of what was the, the Royal Hotel. So that, that made very much sense for it to be the first hole. Um, subsequently, when the, the course, uh, when, when the clubhouse moved in 1895 to its current location and they you know, bought the land, built the, uh, the lovely clubhouse we have today, uh, that's when the routing changes kicked off. Um, so before that, the course had been extended to first 12 and then 18 holes in 1871, which is when it got its Royal designation. Um, but the, yeah, before that, the, the routing actually started uh, in the way that it's going to play for this, um, for this tournament, the upcoming, Open. which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We've, um, it's been a slight problem because obviously just, I mean, you and I sitting here, as I mentioned, whole names and numbers is going to be a nightmare and has yeah, been <laughs> yeah, for the last right. three opens. But there we go. You know, it's one of those things we accept. Uh, we know that the, we know the reasons why they play it like they do for the, for the open. It makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, that's, that's when it really kicked off actually was the 1895 shift to clubhouse and then everything spiraled off from there. <laughs> You might be the best person to ask this question, I don't know, in the world, but right up there. How would you best describe that first golf course? Now that, you know, you've walked the holes, you know the terrain, you know, how would you describe it? And, you know, what would it have been a good course? I believe it was a, a really good course. It obviously showed a great amount of promise uh, enough for, for the expansion to 18 holes and then for it to be uh, bestowed, uh, the, the royal tag. Um uh, I think the greens were were very well regarded. The, apart from the um, what is now we're going to play it as the uh, members thirteen. It's going to mm -hmm. be a fifteen in the open. Sorry, it's um, all right. No, yeah. it's complex. <laughs> that green was actually troubled by the rabbit scrapes, so that was almost in the epicenter of the Warren, and uh, it was known as being sort of lackluster in comparison with the other eight holes. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I think it was conditioning wise, it was meant to be extremely good and of course was blown by mighty winds, etc. And, uh, yeah, it was held in great esteem. 
And who designed the first nine? Sorry, we should, should have asked you that in the beginning. Chambers and Morris. So Robert Chambers was um, the, he was a family by, by marriage. He was related to uh, the uh, club founder, James Muir Dowie, one of the founders who would become its first captain. Um, but he was the person who, who sort of assembled a band of uh, early pioneers, if you like. And, uh, and he said, right, I've got just the man for the job. And he said, Robert Chambers, uh, a Scot. He uh, he was also in with the Morris family in some regards. So he went and got George Morris, who was one of Tom Morris's brothers, to come down with him. And the pair of them laid out the first nine holes. So what happened after those first three initial years? Was it just the growth of the game that the course needed to be expanded to 9, 12, and then 18? I think so. Uh, as far as we can we can tell, th- what happened was the, the initial choice of where to lay out the course was based on how ready it was to use out of the box, if you like. Um, I think the, the, the earliness, <laughs> if that's a word, you know, the sort of, um, you know, how soon the, the, the course was set up was actually a, a blessing and a curse in a way because the that the land that was there was uh, whilst it was ready to go, it didn't have the drama and the undulation and change in elevation and other things that, that we find attractive today. Um, I, th- I think the, the, the land that we've now incorporated along the dune Ridge, um, which is uh, of more interest to the modern golfer is um, was only able to be used later on once uh, technology and, and tools and everything else uh, took hold. And also the popularity of the game. I mean, when we, when the course was first day la- laid out the nine holes, it was still a risky choice i mean it was it was getting interesting and people were exporting you know englishmen let's say were were coming out of scotland and and saying you know this game's great let's get it going down in england everyone will love it it was still risky because it was a you know financial risk you were asking people to part with money to to sort of join a club and get it going without the assurance that it was going to take off in the way that it did um and I think Hoylake was one of those sort of early pioneering clubs that was set up on land that was sort of less risky because it w- it could be used without having to spend a fortune and, and time and um, and everything else trying to make the land uh, usable for golf. So that's why the sort of flatness of the of those holes was, uh, you know, that's that's why basically. Makes sense. Uh, do mm. we know who designed the new holes? I'm assuming George Morris, but am I am I wrong in that assumption? When you say new, do you mean the extension? Uh, the extension, sorry, to 12 and then 18. Yes, Jack Morris. Uh, Chambers and uh, Morris, the older Morris, didn't uh, aren't credited with any of the sort of later revisions. It may be that they were, but I, uh, Jack Morris is much more. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, as I say, 12 holes. We don't know where the extra, um, the extra set of holes were to extend to 12, but I imagine they were where the... Uh, the later extension to 18 were, which is down the finger of land where our far and punched bowl holes are. Um, it, it was it, It's a story of sort of fluid boundaries, really, because we're now encased uh, on all sides apart from the, the beach um, by, by housing, obviously. But at the time, it was much more fluid and open and the, the boundaries were far less settled. Um, it was a sort of constant trade with the, the landowner who was Lord Stanley of Alderley. So he was the the actual landowner and the, and the land was leased from him. And uh, it was just basically a set of agreements about, you know, w- with time periods and amounts of money exchanged. And and it was a sort of what 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 what's going to make good land? You know, what can we add to the course? What what do we take away? Constant trade off houses were being built. Um, you know, we were losing and gaining land uh, right through that first sort of 30, 40 years of the club's existence. That's crazy. Um, mm. Do we know if any of the 18 holes, those original 18 holes, do any of them exist on the current routing? The first 18. Um, now, let's think. 
as I say, the stand hole is fairly close to to being one of those first 18. The course hole was not, not exactly the way it was when first extended. The course hole only went to a green that was halfway up the fairway. Um, there were a couple of holes that played out to the place that's now housing, playing along Mel's Drive. Uh, there's some great old pictures of John Ball playing down the the um, the Stanley Hole, which is now to a, a garden. Um, there's a <laughs> person's front garden used to be a green. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we had a long straight uh, par five, which is which was uh, changed in 1965 by Hawtrey, which was two holes merged together to make a sweeping dogleg par five. But that used to be a straightaway long par five, which was part of the original layout. Um, and the Dowie, the infamous Dowie Hole, was uh, was there or thereabouts. Um, yeah, there are a few. There are a few that basically occupy similar land, but aren't yeah. exactly the same. But are a couple of the have greens. been tweaked over time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there are some semblances of it left. I'll jump into my next historical tidbit. Uh, Royal Liverpool was the first club to host the Amateur Championship back in 1885. It has since hosted the Amateur Championship a record 18 times. On top of that, the RNA became the ruling body over golf in the mid-1890s, but it was here at Royal Liverpool where the Amateur Rules and Amateur Rules of Status were established. I understand, uh, Joe, over the next 20 to 25 years leading into the 1897 Open Championship, the course evolved even more. Could you elaborate on those changes? Yes. The, um, I, find the, I think the most interesting one was um, at that time, it was, uh, the, the clubhouse was also being moved. So 1895, a couple of years in advance of the tournament itself. Um, but the, there was a, a desire to get the course into its best possible shape before the Open arrived. And part of that involved trying to expand the land on which it was built. Um, previously, there were too many holes playing down a very narrow strip of land. Um, so if you can imagine for those who know the course, there's a, it feels like there's, there's a, a sort of finger of land going down to the South, uh, which stops at the, uh, the, what's called the far green. So we play it as the eighth, the members and, um, and come back down the punch bowl hole. And, uh, basically those two holes and a couple of the sort of shorter holes leading down there were, uh, you had about seven holes occupying that space that's now occupied by two and a half, let's say. Uh, so it was a really kind of cramped setup and there was a, there was some crisscrossing going on and, uh, and it was a bit dangerous and some of the holes were very short and it wasn't very good. Um, so subsequently they decided to, to buy some more land, lease some more land from this chap, uh, Lord Stanley. And they had a choice. It's really, really interesting looking back because there was a choice between two parcels of land, how they could extend the the acreage and sort of reroute the course. Um, they had a choice between two places. One was uh, that there's a chunk of land that now um, is, is all houses. Uh, but in the old days, the Royal Hotel used to be the last house on the strip that is now Stanley Road. And Stanley Road leads all the way down to somewhere called Hillbury Point, which is where Red Rocks are. And there were, there were basically no houses. There were, in time, a couple of houses were built beyond the Royal Hotel. But at the time, it was pretty open land and it was rock, you know, cliffside and very, very dramatic land, a bit sort of pebble beachy in that respect. Um, so that that was a possibility. And two holes were drawn up to take the player away from one of the existing greens and play back on themselves. So two holes going right out to that point and back. So that was planned and drawn up, but sadly did not was not chosen. Um, and the reason was, I think, because the land would have been too difficult to, to, you know, make ready for golf in time. So instead, they decided to take the land that is now our fifth and sixth hole, the Telegraph and the Briars. And those were previously a um, uh, Hoylake rug, football rugby club. 
rugby football, as it was known in those kind of in those days. And uh, the captain of um, Hoylake Rugby Football Club was Harold Hilton, of all people. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah. that. There you go. Yeah, there's an old picture of him with his team. Um, yeah, so they bought that land and um, and they built the, the two new holes over that. And Jack Morris was one of those heavily involved in that. Uh, and I think a few other prominent members like Jack Graham and, and others, probably Hilton, probably Ball. Um, but yeah, when, when that land was was bought, those two holes rooted over there. It sort of extended the feel of the, the, the club a bit more breathing space, some better rooting, new new tees, some recited greens. And the whole place just um, just felt superior. That's great. I'm going to go into my next historical tidbit. Uh, you mentioned Harold Hilton. Perhaps no club in history can boast of two greater amateur duos than John Ball Jr. and Harold Hilton. While Ball won eight amateur championships and became the first amateur to win a professional major, the 1890 Open, Harold Hilton won four amateur championships. He won the Open Championship twice, including the 1897 Open when Hilton became the first winner of the Open hosted at Royal Liverpool. Finally, Hilton became the first golfer in history to win the U.S. and British Amateur in the same year, a feat that has only been matched by three other golfers in golf history. The others are Bobby Jones in 1930, Lawson Little in 1934 and 1935, and Bob Dixon in 1967. World War I, Joe, pushed Royal mm-hmm. Liverpool into a bit of disrepair, but following the First World War, it opened up an opportunity. Joe, what did Royal Liverpool do in the early 1920s for the course? From what we can see, it was the biggest single change to the course um, that that has happened across its history. Uh, Harry Colt was invited as the first official named professional architect to to be invited to draw up a master plan for the place. Uh, His remit involved things like uh, changing the shapes of greens, which until that time were basically Victorian. Oh, excuse me, uh, were basically Victorian geometric, either rectangles or triangles or anything else. So really kind of old fashioned Victorian things, um, mostly fronted by strip bunkers and uh, and tees also fronted by strip bunkers, because at the time, obviously, it was seen as a, you know, that was your standard hazard for flatland golf was to hurdle, jump over hurdles of, of sand and turf. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, Joe, I did not know that in this era, it was still semi-Victorian. It makes sense, right? But mm. I, I guess I didn't put two and two together. There was a lot of Victorian legacy still about the course, shapes of greens mainly and, and strip bunkers. And the strip bunkers weren't, they weren't as man-made as it may sound um, when I say it like that. The The whole the whole course is, as, a, as I said at the very start, was that the whole piece of land was really a, a grazing site of fields that were um, chopped up into parcels called tithes. And um, Tithes were these sort of ancient areas of land that were were leased uh, by farmers, uh, and they and they would have their livestock in those in those parcels of land. And one of the ways they would try and keep their livestock from straying was to build up these turf walls called cops. Uh, there, there is some research that says the cops not only served as a, a sort of barrier to keep your um, animals from straying, but they also helped with um, with flooding. Uh, so there is some some talk over whether the cops at Hoylake were acted as a sort of flood defense as well as as what we just said, like a wall. Um, so these these cops were were built by the farmers um, by them digging trenches. So they dig the trench, take the turf and build it up and compact it into a sturdy sort of mud wall. And these were all over the course in these sort of linear 
you know, in these linear shapes, basically. And, um, and by virtue of the, the trench being dug, there was a lot of blown sand across the landscape at that time. And, uh, you know, there's very little grass that had plugged the, um, the blown sand, not like today, which is all sort of it's knitted in and bound, you know, the very little dynamism in the dunes. But um, at that time, it was much more loose and the, the sand was blown and it would cover the course and would fill these trenches with natural sort of bunkers. And uh, one of those great bunkers used to go right around what is now the practice ground. So it used to have almost a 360 loop going right around the practice ground was just this big unbroken bunker. Um, And there were lots of examples of this big long strip bunkers that were just a hazard. You know, they were just played as a hazard on the course and were more often than not accompanied by a turf wall. So they came as a pair generally. Where where was Harry Colton, his career by the time he visited uh, Royal Liverpool? Was he in the height of his powers? I don't think anybody would say the height of his powers. Uh, I, some argue that it's it much earlier than that. I mean, I'm not a cult expert by any stretch, but but I think he was already well into uh, doing the best in, best things in his career. You know, 1913, he was obviously uh, building St. George's Hill and, and was out at Pine Valley doing his thing. But, the um, you know, he was certainly an extremely proficient architect by that stage, well regarded, and was seen as clearly the clear favorite for the job. Um, yeah, but I mean, his, his remit was to reimagine all of the bunkering across the course, the shapes of greens, get rid of these old fashioned hurdle style hazards and make some more sensible, appropriate choices for where to put hazards and, and, you know, who to, who to tax, if you like, you know, stop trying to, um, hobble the already hobbled, uh, amateur golfer and start targeting the elite golfer with some more intelligent strategic bunkering. And did he change any holes like uh, from a routing standpoint or was he just specifically looking at the strategy of holes that were already designed? No, he did. He did made some extremely significant changes. So I, I mentioned all the things like bunkering and shapes of greens and stuff, because that's less, less well known about what he did. It, what he did can't be understated. It was a massive an utter overhaul of the course. But the big things that have remained with us today and are most remembered are the, the changing of the, the, the basically four holes that stick out. So we had the, the eighth hole, which I mentioned earlier, which is called far. And that goes out to the southerly point on the course. And it used to have a green that played to a, a depression, like a bowl shaped green, which was obviously popular in the days gone by because it used to hold water. And in the days pre-irrigation, you know, it was a way of keeping it green and playable. So that was very, very popular across the place. We had lots of these sort of depression greens, these sort of punch bowls. Um, and he decided at the time there was a way to to maintain um, greens without necessarily having to do this sort of natural gathering of water. Um, and one of those things was raising the, the green to where it is today up onto the top of the dune rather than sitting at the base of it. Um, the reasons that the members went for this as, as a change was that they'd, they'd grown tired of people being able to sort of thin a uh, whatever club they'd chosen to play and, and just have it scoot along the ground and feed into this green on the, using the contours of the land. They were like, oh, it's too easy to hit in two and this is meant to be a real three-shotter. You know, how can we combat this? And Harry Colt's idea was, well, we can have a nice sort of hog's back style lead up to this, this green which sits on top of the dune rather than at the base of it. So that was one of the... Um, one of the change, major changes. Uh, another one was on the uh, the 17th, which is our royal hole. 
Um, and that used to previously play to a green that was, in fact, near to the road. Um, but he moved it about 30 yards further along, completely rebunkered the hole and turned it into what I, th- I, I personally believe was the absolute go to for flatland architecture. Just an incredible par four. Um, sadly, in later years, we've had to move the green away from the road because it was deemed too dangerous. Uh, there were balls flying onto the tarmac and, you know, at risk of killing oh, somebody. Too bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. I know. But Driver oh, beware. Show. Yeah, exactly. We are in a litigious age and uh, the risk wasn't deemed worth taking. So uh, Imagine if they did that at the old course, by the way. Oh, God, I know that would go down badly. But (laughs) I shouldn't have brought it up. No, well, it's (laughs) It's going to happen now. Slightly different, isn't it, there? Because you've got a bit of space between the old pathway. You can aim almost anywhere. Yeah, this is a, um, no, this road is, is like traffic road rather than a footpath going past the course. So anyway, so slightly different. But yes, that was one of the major changes and was very, very well received. And members loved that hole up until uh, year 2000. Um, the uh, 11th and 12th are the biggest changes. Um, so the 11th hole is called Alps. And uh, over years and years of, of alteration, and it used to be a par five where the final shot was over this dune to a blind sort of Victorian rectangular green at the base of the dune. That was the long Alps. And then there was a short Alps, which was playing from a tee that was sort of closer to the uh, closer to the beach, playing again over this blind dune down into a into a sort of depressed green. Um, his, his, uh, his remit, one of the many remits was to get rid of as many blind shots on the course as he could. Uh, they'd started to become less popular and, uh, you know, that was one of the things he was asked to do. So he drew up a, a new par three, which played in a similar direction, but sort of diagonally across to where it is today. Um, so the, the, that in, it, part of that involved, uh, building a green, which was beachside, and what we have today is a is a marsh that's developed uh, since the 30s onwards, and the marsh now separates the green from the the high tide mark. Uh, but in the old days, before the marsh had developed and the, the embryo dunes had, had kicked in, uh, the the sea water used to come really quite close to the green. Um, so that would have been very very glamorous back in the day, as you know the tide was high. But it still has this beautiful charm uh, today. It's a timeless hole, and you know real contender for best on the course. Um, but in my opinion, the next hole is the best on the course, which is the Hilbury hole. And this was another piece of cult genius. Um, so the blind drive, there was a blind drive that, that had you teeing off from the dunes over a big shoulder of, uh, of dune into a, um, a fairway beyond, and then a straight shot to a, to a green that, that lies at where the, uh, fairway dog legs today, dog legs left hard at about 45 degrees. Um, Bernard Darwin, <laughs> Uh, was famed for saying he lamented the loss of the old 12th hole and thought the new one was was not uh, better, which I, which is amazing. I mean, having never played the old hole, you know, there you go. Darwin knows his stuff, but maybe he gets some things wrong. <laughs> Darwin's uh, a sucker for blind shots. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, but this one still has a sort of semi-blind shot. Tiger in 2006 hold his four iron for eagle uh, from a blind shot. He was, yeah. he was, you know, short of the bunkers on the left and it made his his approach to the flag blind and he didn't know the ball had gone in until he heard the big shout. So, uh, yeah. But that's uh, the 12th hole is amazing. Um, what what Colt did there was actually absolute stroke of genius. It was brilliant. All right. I'm going to jump into my historical tidbit. The 1902 Open at Hoy Lake marked a major shift in the golf world. The 1902 Open Championship was won by a tremendous underdog. Nobody expected Sandy Hurd to win the Open. It wasn't that Hurd was a bad player. Quite the opposite. With nine top tens in the Open prior to the 1902 Open at Hoy Lake. 
but he didn't seem to be a strong threat heading into the championship. Over the course of the previous eight Opens, from 1894 to 1901, only three men had won the Open Championship, Harry Varden, J.H. Taylor, and James Braid. And yet Hurd held them all back. His secret weapon, the Haskell Ball, the first wound rubber core ball. The Haskell was designed in 1899 and allowed players of all skill levels to pick up 30 to as many as 50 yards on their drives. The Bounding Billy, as some called the ball, won its first professional major in the 1902 Open at Hoy Lake, and it effectively signed the death note on all traditional gutta-percha golf balls. When the governing bodies complain about distance today, it all started with the Haskell Ball and the 1902 Open at Hoy Lake. I mean, there's so much history here. I mean, beyond like just the golf course and who's won it, it's just... I mean, it's it's staggering to me. It really is. You you can see why I got a, a real taste for it. It's um, once you open the box and start digging, it's it's hard to stop. It's almost endless. And as I say, we've got some fabulous books that have been written on uh, the the subjects of the you know the history of the place and the evolution of the course. Anthony Schoen, who's senior trustee of the club, he wrote a brilliant book uh, with Richard Latham, um, which was two thousand and seven, I think, shortly after the first. Um, open, you know, the first open back after the break, Tiger one. And it's a brilliant book. And it really goes into some brilliant detail about how the the course has changed over the years. But of course, it, you know, in the, in the intervening 15 years since he wrote it, the, the huge amounts of information has, has come up, you know, uh, subsequently with the, the digital age, people digitizing old newspapers and things and with with people willing to uh, pour through these things with new techniques like, you know, searches and speeding processes up. We've, we've found so much more. Um, the, uh, the previously mentioned 12th green that Harry Colt installed is no longer is that I've recently discovered isn't actually an original Harry Colt green. What we have today, which I think is is contender for the best green on the course, the best green site, um, wasn't actually a Harry Colt design. It appears that post World War Two, um, some people who are not named uh, and who can't be credited uh, actually wow. created what we have today, which is a fabulous green. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. I and I'll tell you, you know, I think I knew about I knew Sandy Hurd's story. I just didn't know it was Hoy Lake. Like put all these <laughs> things together. And I, I think no one can underestimate the impact of the 1902 Open on professional golf. I mean, forget about golf for you and me. I mean, this history is written on professional golf, whether we like it or not. And yeah. that ball changed the world. I mean, that changed, you know, all of a sudden you have the likes of Harry Varden, who did not want to change from the gutty ball, realizing that if he didn't make the change, he wasn't going to win any more majors. It's really staggering time. And that happens Indeed. at Hoy Lake. It's been, yes, it's been, it's been the site of many a major, <laughs> major change and revelation and everything else going, going on. I mean, our mutual friend, Stephen Proctor, uh, has written about it so well in, um, the long golden afternoon. It's, it's just so well documented and researched by him and well worth anybody's time reading that. If you haven't already, it is uh, fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Harry Colt is considered, if not the greatest, one of the greatest golf course architects of all time. Uh, you know, he 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 finished your renovation, I guess we'd call it, and clearly we're done with the evolution evolution of Hoy Lake, right? There's no more changes. Um, we're done, right? Is this the end of the show? Well, obviously not. There you go. That's good. <laughs> Walk hosting, us through the changes. Yeah. 
post Colt <laughs> into World War II and up into the next golf course architect? Like what, what happened during World War II that perhaps set Hoy Lake, Royal Liverpool on a new path? Because obviously the, the, you know, there were things done to the course during the war that affected everything that followed. Yes, yeah, so Colt was working at the club for a long time. Um, we have found recent evidence that he was still coming back and installing things like bunkers right into the 30s, um, arguably right up to the to the outbreak of war in 39. So, yeah, he, he was heavily influential for a, a long, long time. I, I think it could be as much as 15 years. Um, so the the with the outbreak of war, the land, some of the land on the dune side was uh, set up as a minefield to prevent, um, you know, sort of sea sea landings and uh, and also the flatter fairways, because obviously we are it's the blessing and the curse of the site is that the, um, you know, the flat fairways would have made perfect landing zones for gliders, um, for German gliders. So they had posts, anti glider posts installed and we can still see them in the old um, 40s oblique pictures that we have. Wow. Uh, it's really amazing to see. So, yeah, the particularly flat land around the um, around the practice ground that's now our first and 16th holes. Those were those were, yeah, yeah loads of posts set up so the gliders couldn't land. Um, so, it, you know, it served a purpose during the war. Um, I, I anecdotes would have it that there were you'd occasionally hear a bang uh, because a sheep had walked onto a mine. Up no in the way. Tubes. Yeah, I'm not sure how true that is, but there we go. That's, I mean, it's kind of terrifying when you think about it. So it is, yeah. the war ends. What happens to the course prior to 1959, prior to the next golf course architect? There is no other named architect in that time. Um, Guy Farrar, who was the uh, sort of champion secretary of the club, uh, he he was in uh, he was in position for about twenty years, I think, um, and he he wrote a, a brilliant book about the the course's history and evolution um, in the fifties. And he he was heavily uh, involved in any course changes that happened between you know post war and right up to uh, to his uh, resignation and death. Um, but he was so entrenched in the place. He was a lifelong bachelor. Uh, he was just utterly dedicated. So um, so anything that sort of goes unnamed and uncredited, you could probably put his name to it oh. um, at least. So Guy Farrar, quite a, you know, strong influence at that time. Um, the changes that, that occurred post-war, some of them were uh, due to probably lack of finance and a new approach to how you maintained the golf course. Um, bunkers were filled in. Yeah, um, I mean, because we're essentially you – you go from the Great War to essentially like a Great Depression. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the so, same was yeah, true for post, post World War. Yeah. Bunkers filled in, right? So that's your ghost bunkers out there that still exist today, right? Are true. Some of those remnants. Absolutely, there there are lots of them, um, and that was going on. The sort of bunker reshaping was going on for the next twenty years. Let's say um, we've got aerials that go back to nineteen thirty-five. Uh, it's a bit, you know, it's a very very crusty old aerial, and it probably wasn't composed of many separate photos. So you know, it doesn't have the the mm-hmm. detail that you'd have from much later ones. But yeah, it's quite it's quite rare in the UK to have any kind of aerial um, proper aerial map, full course map from anything before the um, before the Second World War when the RAF um, undertook this sort of uh, nationwide aerial survey. And um, yeah, it's great to see the 30s because um, at first when I studied that map, it looked as though the sort of white areas, they're quite, you know, the contrast is very heavy, dark and light. And some of the whiter areas just look as though there might be splodges in the um, in the picture, you know, some sort of uh, fuzz or whatever else. But actually on reflection, you can see that's just sand. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So you can see some quite... Um, 
very very hard lines you know harsh lines rather than looking like a traditional bunker shape you'll see these lines and you're oh god that's one of those uh, trench bunkers i was talking about you know there's a 400 yard unbroken straight trench bunker going no on the way. left <laughs> yeah along Where the left was side that? of the old third well it was when when i said earlier about buying the rugby pitch land for the uh, fifth and sixth holes um those used to be out of bounds because we didn't own the land and that goes for most of the out of bounds at hoylake it was a question of not owning the land and having no choice over whether it's out of bounds or not right um you know we've now got the legacy out internal out of bounds which of course it's now synonymous with but actually at the time we had no choice but to root around them because we didn't own the land so um but that's another story so the yeah left of this hole it was the old third the straightaway par five third which was changed in the 60s by hawtree but the um previously the old hole was just dead straight and it played from right in the corner t right in the corner of the property uh straight down 490 yards or something to the green um and on the left side it was out of bounds all the way and had a huge unbroken bunker that ran 400 yards and um and left of that was a ob and then you know if you got in the bunker imagine as a right-hander trying to play from on top of a turf wall to a ball that's beneath your feet you know about four feet beneath your feet it must have been a heck of a shot um darwin documents that sh- that particular shot and he used to remember john ball playing it so if they were playing in a match he was always astounded at how well john ball could play the shot that was basically him mid swing he'd be falling into the ball so he'd sort of take his back swing and then fall down into the ball and manage to extricate himself with this right-handed <laughs> That's amazing, shot. Amazing, right? Amazing. Yeah, really cool. But in t- in subsequent times, the out of bounds was removed because we are, we obviously owned the land and it was deemed a bit too harsh. Part mainly because um, the out of bounds rule changed, and uh, it sort of flicked back, flicked flacked back and forth across the forties, fifties, sixties, and even as late as the seventies, I think. Um, but, but what happened was it used to be stroke. So it was just a single stroke penalty. You re-teed and you got on with it, or you replayed the shot at the cost of one. Whereas now it's stroke and distance, the two shot penalty. And when that change was, uh, took hold, you know, all of these sort of out of bounds were, were serious, you know, serious penalty. And actually, whilst they were still part of the essence of the whole, it was deemed too punishing and too much of a penalty. So they were taken out of action. And that goes for the Dowie hold, the infamous Dowie. So um, what what was the most feared and revered hole in the days of out of bounds left of the green immediately off the side of the green um, became a sort of strange um, anachronism, really. And because we had then bought the land beyond the green and turned it into the, the uh, next hole's tee. It was by virtue of that bit an internal out of bounds and was, you know, seen by some as sort of tricked up, even though, of course, it was just <laughs> the reason for it being out of bounds because it used to be out of bounds. Yeah, uh, so, so it, right. Yeah. And, and a great hole, you know, and everybody loved this hole for its sort of fearsome qualities. Uh, and people used to play it in two shots deliberately, which is a rare thing to have a strategic par three, you know, to actually have to have a strategy for this hole. Um, but it was taken out of play in the you know, 67 Open um the one that uh, De Vicenzo won. Uh, it was taken out of play because there was some fear from the RNA over whether um, people would see the course as being a bit uh, Mickey Mouse if people who didn't understand the out-of-bounds, internal out-of-bounds rule from overseas or wherever um, thought that it was some sort of weird trickery or thought mistake. They were slighted, yeah. Yeah, something like that if one of the sort of overseas favourites was done by this weird quirk. So anyway, they took it out of action for the 67 um, Open, which is a shame because, of course, the hole by that time had lost all its bunkers. Um, it had lost the rushes that now are there are now a marsh in the rebuild in 92 but the uh previously yeah the bunkers had gone uh, it was just a sort of flat par three with a uh a 
triangular-ish pear-shaped green, which sat next to an old cop. And of course, with it not being out of bounds, um, there was no there was no essence of the whole left really. So it was rebuilt in '92. All right, I'm going to go into another historical tidbit. Famed golf writer and amateur golfer Bernard Darwin once said of Hoylake, Hoylake, blown upon by mighty winds, breeder of mighty champions. Some prominent names of winners at the Open at Hoylake include Harold Hilton, J.H. Taylor, Walter Hagen, Bobby Jones, Peter Thompson, Tiger Woods, and Rory McIlroy. Prominent winners of the Amateur at Hoylake include Horace Hutchinson, John Ball, Freddie Tate, Joe Carr, who won three amateur championships, and Michael Bonalak, who won four amateur championships. In 1959, the club hired yet another golf course architect to renovate the links. Who did they hire, and what did he undertake? It was F.W. Hawtrey, uh, who was father of Martin Hawtrey and son of F.G. Hawtrey. And uh, the F.G. Hawtrey was in partnership with um, J.H. Uh, Taylor, and they were responsible for the rebuild of Birkdale in the 30s. Um, and many other things, of course. So the uh, the Hawtrey dynasty, this was the middle one. And uh, he did many things. He he made revisions to Birkdale. He almost completely rebuilt the back nine at Hillside uh, and did lots of other things. He worked with uh, Frank Pennink, and the two of them were invited to draw up a master plan in 1959. And there was an open due. We'd, we'd had um, the open with uh, Peter Thompson being the winner shortly before that. And then it was decided to make some revisions to the course. And he was invited to submit his master plan in 59, which he did. <laughs> and uh, and not everything was was taken on board, as with all of these things. But but lots of it was um, the, the big change was that um, we were going to gain a new hole, uh, a completely new hole. And the, his major change involved taking the describe, the past five I described before, the long straight par five with the outer bounds on the left, uh, and combining that with the next hole, which is a par three. So the par five and par three were merged into a single hole, which swept right to left dogleg. Um, the previous uh, par three was called cop, uh, and it used to have a, uh, a cop wall, as you can imagine, running straight across the front of the green and straight in front of the tee. Over the years, the tee had been shifted, the internal out of bounds had been taken away, and the, the hole had lost any semblance of interest, really. So that was not a, a sort of unpopular loss, really. But the old straight par, th- um, straight par five wa- was lamented, uh, but in time, people realized that actually the net, the net gain was, was massive. Um, so yeah, the new sweeping par five and a new par three, which is named aptly new, uh, was, was built in 1965 and was ready for play in the 67 Open. So those were major changes. And then in 1994, you had a, another renovation, correct, of the Dowie Hole? Is that correct? Yeah, described before. So I, I think it was 92, actually, when it was um, when it was drawn up and, and the build started. I think it was ready for play in 93. I, I should remember it really well because that was when I joined the club. Um, I do remember the old hole. I came out sort of after dark when I was just learning the game with my, my dad. Um, so, yeah, I do remember the old hole. But Who as I said before... Work? Uh, it was Cameron Sinclair. Uh, that was the only thing he was invited to to do. So he drew up the plan for the new hole that we have today, um, which is a very nice hole. It's very attractive. Doesn't, um, you know, obviously doesn't have internal out of bounds in it. Uh, but <laughs> All the <laughs> what, shame. All oh, the shame. Imagine, I've got this great idea, you know, you need to install some internal out of bounds. Um, 
but yeah, he, he, one of the changes that was made to, you know, in the building of that hole was to take a, a load of earth, which is now reeds and marshland, just um, sort of short left of the tees, uh, and, and take all of that earth and build up the dunes on the right hand side, which now separate uh, the 10th the hole, the D hole from the, the Dowie. And it looks as though it's been there forever, but actually was, was part of the 93 build. And it's, it's a brilliant addition. Uh, that was carried out by members of the, uh, the green staff and also the village play, the artisans. So that was an in-house job and is fantastic as far as I'm concerned. All right. I'm going to ju- jump into another historical tidbit. Hoy Lake played host to the first, I'm using quotation marks, official international golf match between England and Scotland in 1902, and the first transatlantic clash between Great Britain and Ireland in 1921, the forerunner of the Walker Cup. Now, I say official in quotation marks because technically, the first international golf match actually occurred at Leith Links, when the future king of England and a cobbler defended the game's birthright being Scotland against two English noblemen. Weird little factoid, sorry. Nice one. Very good. In 1999, the club hired yet another architect to help modernize the links. Is that a fair statement when I say modernize, Joe? Modernize, sorry. Give me the year again. Uh, 1999. 99, yes. Donald Steele. Um, what, what was he asked to do? And what did, that, what did they mean by modernize? What, what did that mean from the RNA or the Hoy Lake standpoint? Do we, where do you get the word modernize? Where have you read that? <laughs> Probably in your papers, to be honest with okay. you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, modernize. Maybe you didn't mean term. it. Maybe you didn't mean it in that regard. Okay. So the, there was a long hiatus um, between 1967 and 2006 when we got the Open back, the big gap in the middle. Um, reasons being that the, the tournament had sort of outgrown the site uh, for various reasons. Um, it was it was a tricky one. Obviously, we have Birkdale and, and Lytham both hosting opens down the road from each other, you know, uh, close close together. And um, and Hoylake had fallen out of favour for multiple reasons. I won't go into the politics of any of it, but um, but one of the reasons was the, the you know the course needed a, another look. So Donald Steele was seen as the um, the the chap who was going to bring it you know bring it into the uh, 2000s and and also make it fit for purpose for an open in in 2006 or the bid for the open in 2006 um so he was working alongside Derek Green who was the long serving uh, course manager uh, who uh, died suddenly um and was replaced by Craig Gillum who uh, took on the first open in 2006 yes um it was a, a shock um but yeah Craig inherited a good course and did a fantastic job bringing it up to the standards that were ready for um for for open play but yeah 99 was uh, when when Donald Steele was invited to submit his master plan um and some of the changes that he made are have gone massively unheralded because they're subtle changes. Um, some of the things like uh, the runoff swale to the left of our members first green, which separates the tee from the green. It turns what is, uh, uh, you know, the flattest part of the, the course into something which has interest and very subtle intrigue and requires you to play different types of shot from that position rather than it just being a complete flat expanse. Um, those sorts of things that he implemented are were absolutely fantastic. He made some fairly sizable overhauls to three of the greens, one of which was, as we talked about before, the old Royal Green, which used to be Harry Colt's green was benched hard against Stanley Road, uh, whilst a fantastic and ingenious hole it was considered too dangerous. So, so he was invited to, to draw a design for how he would take the green away from that road, uh, you know, try and keep the essence of what was the architecture of, uh, of Harry Colt. And, uh, and, you know, that was built. 
um, in 2000. One of the other changes was the green on the the last hole. We we didn't know that the routing was going to be shifted to start on on this hole, but um, you know at the time it was assumed it was going to be the last hole, and they were slightly afraid that in an open, you know, we would have a a fairly lackluster finish if that were to be the last hole. Um, which it was in 1967. So, so they thought, how can we, you know, soup it up and make it better and more fitting as a final hole? Subsequently, it was decided to finish on 16, which I think is a very wise move. Um, the, yeah, the, the green on that one was changed. It was altered. It was um, pushed up. Uh, it rejected balls. It had more interest on the the surface and various other things. The bunkering was completely rechanged, uh, completely changed. Um, and he also changed the the third green so the the hawtree hole that he'd created by merging two two holes together um what happened was we we shifted the tee further away from the corner of the property because it was right behind the previous green uh it was deemed too dangerous for balls flying through and you know clattering somebody on the tee so the tee was shifted and that was moved about 60 yards forward and part of that was to to keep the length of the hole was um extending the green site further back into the dune land and actually that's a really that's a really good green um that we've got there it took a while to bed in but but everybody's used to it now and it feels like it you know it belongs to the course yeah, it's very good. But whereas it's very difficult for the 18th green to feel like it belongs because it's a very, very flat piece of land. And the fact that the green has all this interest and, you know, shape to it, uh, it's still over 25 years. It doesn't quite feel like it fits with the other green uh, types. But, um, you know, his remit was to try and, you know, make something out of uh, out of a hole to make it fitting as a last hole. Um, but anyway, there we go. All right. Going into another historical tidbit. Royal Liverpool has been unique in the past, being the only course within the open rota that uses a different configuration of holes in the tournament than used by members. As Joe just mentioned, in 2006, the RNA changed the layout, so it started on the 17th and finished on the par 5 16th, with the first hole for the members being the third at the open. Joe, I guess my question is, do the members ever adopt the open configuration? for full-time member play? Or, or do you ever have tournaments where we're going to play the the open routing? Does that happen? No, only in the um, lead up to the open. So this year it switched permanently about four months before uh, before kickoff for the open. Um, it, it has been to a vote previously, but not been taken on. Um, I know there are some people who think it's better that way. Others don't. Uh, but, it, you know, the, the sort of major major vote has been to keep it the way we've always played it. I say always, you know, since 1895. Uh, in, incidentally, since 1895, there was um, some, there's a record of them playing the, something like the spring meeting um, with the reconfigured routing. So starting as they do in the open. Uh, but for some reason, it didn't take hold and was shifted back. Um, Fred Hawtrey's 59 submission included an idea for starting on that hole. Uh, and it was, I think, just wasn't taken up. But anyway, subsequently, it was. I don't know why, but there we go. So, and, and this is, I'm putting the pieces together here. In 2006, I understand the RNA had some routing issues, or perhaps the membership did, and some concerns with some of the changes made by Steele, particularly with the Greens. What occurred after 2006? Um, Martin Hawtrey was invited to come and, and submit his plans. Um, lots of those changes that, that were implemented at, at his uh, behest were the um, there were more swales and expansions around greens uh, to allow for more sorts of variety and uh, things like chips and putts and flops and whatever you want to call it um, and also a complete overhaul of the the bunkering um, 
I there previously Donald Steele was a big fan of sort of kidney shaped um, bunkers. So those had been installed um, ahead of the 06 Open. And if you look back at, you know, Tiger and, and, and his win and the footage and things and the aerials from that time, there's a lot of, sort of kidney shapes to these bunkers. But actually what happened with the kidney shapes was that the wind, you know, when it got up and we've we've heard about mighty winds and mighty champions, the place does get very, very windy. And because it's so exposed, you know, the wind can get brutal at times. Um, and one of the, the downsides of a kidney, kidney shaped bunker is that it can whip sand right out of them. So not only the size of the bunker, but also that that shape had a downside to it. And that that was seen as a problem with sand blow. So one of the ways that Autry suggested to uh, mitigate that was to, to make the green uh, make the bunkers um, smaller and pottier. So <laughs> rounder and smaller. Um, and in being smaller, the thinking was that it would reduce maintenance costs uh, whilst, you know, you introduce the sort of sphere of influence around the bunker so that you had a depression that's doing the work previously done by the bunker that was bigger, you know, which would draw balls into the sand. Um, I'm not sure whether whether the logic holds up entirely, but anyway, that was implemented and uh, and we were, you know, had a completely new look bunker system across the course, uh, lots of new swales and also this um, concept of broken ground. So um, man-made broken ground, <clears throat> introducing irregularities to stances and lies and everything else. Um, so in key areas where, with modern equipment, people were taking on corners, cutting corners, getting nice bounces that they shouldn't be getting for errant shots. You know, it was to mitigate that sort of thing. So actually, when you look with modern um, equipment such as drones uh, and and lidar data and various other things, you can see where this broken ground has been has been added across you know, six, seven of the holes. So that was a, a Hawtree uh, mastermind. The sun. The uh, Martin Hawtrey, yes, so the, yeah. the youngest of the three uh, generations. Really cool how that uh, two generations, right, have their input at uh, Hoy Lake. Yes, yes. Another historical tidbit, Royal Liverpool is the only open layout that features internal out-of-bounds in the middle of the course next to the 3rd, 17th, and 18th holes in the open. Just when you think the evolution of Hoy Lake is complete, in 2018, we get some additional changes. Joe, who did the work and what did they do? Can we come back to your previous tidbit? Yeah, right okay? away, please. Did you say it's the only open course with internal out-of-bounds? That's what I had on here. Am I wrong? Might be, yeah. I think because since Port Rush has come back on the road. So oh, there you got, go. Yeah. Yeah. I think Didn't we have to strike the, that from yeah, the record. Great point. <laughs> great point. Okay. Sorry. Some we 50 on years in between my notes that I have to account for. <laughs> You, you can just bleep that out. It's fine. No, I'm fine. Um, I like making mistakes. Um, but yeah, the uh, the the internal out of bounds. I have to I just have to go deeper on that one. Yeah, please. As we said before, some of the some of the out of bounds was completely out of the club's hands. You know, at the, in the early days, there was no choice. It was it was called a field. You can see it labelled on old maps you know, field or enclosure. And, you know, enclosure says it all. It was the cent central field around which the uh, horse race, um, the racetrack was was rooted. So in the middle, it was just a field which presumably was livestock and everything else would just, you know, graze in there. Um, it, it wasn't seen as an attractive piece of land that was was worthy of, of leasing from Stanley of Alderley. So, um, so the course was routing around, routed around it, and it was just assumed that nobody would want to use that field for anything. Um, practice certainly wasn't a thing in those days and wouldn't be for many years after. So really, the, the course had grown up around that internal out of bounds. Uh, it was just treated as, you know, standard because you didn't own the land. Therefore, you know, <laughs> what's the problem? It's just out of bounds. That's all it is. And uh, over time, um, 
practice became a thing and it was it became the practice field for the club uh and of course you can't practice on the golf course so even if we wanted to at the moment make it inbounds you know it, it's it's a practice ground and you can't so um so there's no real choice there and, and to get rid of internal out of bounds there would mean getting rid of two of the best holes on the course on the course or at least best you know most architecturally um you know <laughs> best architectural golf holes let's say um you know regardless of what you think of the visual whether you, you you're a fan of the sort of flatland architecture or not those two holes are fantastic and uh, and to suddenly chew up those two holes in, in in a sort of quest to get rid of this internal out of bounds quirk i think would be a massive mistake and so do many others um i think for those who don't understand the internal out of bounds and think it's just a sort of absolute 101 it's like that's fine for you to say, but the course is 150 plus years old, and you know that's got to say something, hasn't it? It's been there forever. So let's not go removing the roots of a golf course in in an effort to sort of modernise and improve when actually it wouldn't do either. I agree. There we go. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> moving swiftly on, the uh, the next architect uh, invited to submit a uh, master plan was Emily Martin Ebert and Tom McKenzie. Um, so they were, I think it was 2018, they submitted their, their plans and, uh, and in 2019, the build started. Um, the previous architect was, uh, Martin Hawtrey, who was in that sort of chain was the only one who didn't build any new holes, outright new holes. Um, but Martin Ebert did. And we have a new, uh, hole called Little Eye, which was previously known as Rushes. And Rushes was a, a cult hole. And what has happened is the, uh, the, the hole has been flipped 180 degrees. And yeah, 180 degrees. What hole would this be in the open? If people it's going to play as the second to last hole, the penultimate okay. hole, 17. Uh, for members, we play it as 15. Um, we, if you read back into old accounts from people like Darwin, the the final five holes at Hoylake were were held in sort of great regard. They were they were feared because they were long, and at the time, obviously, long meant serious business with the old equipment and things over time the you know the equipment has slightly mitigated the the length and terror of those five holes that occurred in a chain um but one of the byproducts of this change is that it's it's broken up that routing of of five sort of long and uh, feared holes so we've now got a par three that's inserted uh, at 15 for the members so uh yes it kind of broken the routing and made it more varied um so that was the major change that, that was implemented in winter 2019 and opened in 2020 for play. Um, the, there were multiple other changes across the course which involved um, extending fairways, uh, new tees, um, new greens on a newly shaped green on our second hole, which has made it incredibly difficult. <laughs> the green <laughs> itself? Yeah, the green itself. So we cut off the back portion to allow for a, a service road to be taken right around the outside of the course uh, to prevent... Um, traffic uh, during the open and other times from crossing over two of the holes so instead they're now being rerouted in a more sensible fashion around the perimeter of the course and part of that involved um, taking away some of the old green on the second hole in order to make it smaller um, and allow for this road to go around the back but also to raise the back up which um, which it used to play a front to back sloping green which was very very difficult to hold and balls would kick through especially with a downwind um, tailwind so anyway, yeah, we've got a new green there, um, which is bedded in very well. Um, it's, it's tremendously difficult, hard up and down if you're off the green. There's a big, big shelf at the back of it. Um, there's a new green on our fifth, which um, which was almost um, completely like-for-like like, uh, rebuilt, about 25 yards left of where it used to be. Uh, but the essence of the hole has remained the strategy of the hole, the bunker placements, everything else. So that, that's been a good job. And... Um, 
Uh, what else has he done? Uh, there's another. Oh, well, there's another green on the new hole, of course. All of the new greens are bedded in very nicely. And you'd be hard pressed to tell which of the, uh, the greens is a new one. You know, they've had three years to, to sink in and they've done very well. How, how do you think the course is going to hold up to the open test? I, I don't, I don't mean scoring, by the way. I, I could care less <laughs> no, about scoring. Yeah, I'm just I'm with you from, a, from a open championship standpoint. I think, judging by the last two two opens, if it, I mean, both opens couldn't have been more different in weather mm. uh, terms. You know, the first one, bone dry, uh, baked out, hard, bouncy, everything else. And the second one, soft, um, you know, had a bit of rain. It played very differently. It was very green. Um, both excellent opens with the best player in the world winning the tournament. I do not know what's going to happen this time. I hope for something similar in, in terms of caliber of winner and leaderboard. Uh, like we all do, um, just for entertainment purposes. But I think the course should do what it's meant to do, which is provide a, an earnest, sturdy test and and lots of entertainment. Uh, it's a great, great course to visit during the Open, from my experience. Uh, it's a really, really fantastic day. Um, the stands are always in the right place. You know, it's just it's just a yeah. cool, cool event. Yeah, we're never going to see another Tiger Woods performance where he basically shells the driver and hits irons all day, right? I mean, not what this a time. We were performance that oh, was. I know, yeah, absolute master of his craft. Um, we the, in the last couple of weeks, it's been very, very dry in the UK, um, mm. and Hoylake hasn't had a lot of rain. But I say, <laughs> but the weather has turned, and we've now been doused with a lot of rain in the last uh, sort of few days and things. So, so the conditions are slightly changing. Um, we won't, I don't think, get two thousand and six. I mean, that was conditions. just one of the coolest things that ever happened in golf, right? Very much. Very, I mean, very that much. That was a show. Oh, wasn't it just? I mean, the, the, <laughs> at his absolute best, just putting on a, a show like that was, was something to behold. And it's wonderful to see the contours come into play. We all know the sort of the cliches and the, uh, the stuff that, you know, you and I agree on and others probably listening to the podcast think as well, is that, you know, the ground game, it's links golf. You know, the more the ball is rolling, the, the, the superior the experience um, you know, and having to bounce the ball short of greens and have them, you know, pitch short and bounce in. Run it's up. just yeah. great to see. No target golf. Everything's bouncing and running. And it was a, you know, feel, all feel. And if we can get another one, of those, brilliant. But if we don't, I'm sure it'll do what it did in 2014, which is, you know, identify a different type of winner who plays it in a different way. Very true. Uh, historical tidbit. Royal Liverpool is often called Hoy Lake. The town of Hoy Lake was actually called Hoyle Lake, H-O-Y-L-E Lake, for the body of water that allowed boats to pass through Chester or the River Dee port and then to Liverpool. The lake, due to silting and a new channel being built to Liverpool, was unused and eventually dried up. The town originally was called Hoose, H-O-O-S-E, adopted the name Hoyle Lake and eventually it morphed into Hoy Lake. There you go. I don't, did you know that part, by the way? I did. The, uh, the Hoyle Lake was a, it was a tidal sort of, it wasn't a Tidal formal. pond, yeah. Yeah, it was more that way. It was big. Uh, there's a lot of sandbanks out there that have, you know, formed over the last sort of 400 years or so. But um, yeah, the Hoyle Lake was a tidal, tidal lake. And um, yeah, that's, it gives its name to our, what's going to play as the, uh, the lake hole is the 14th for members and the 16th in the open. Don't you just lake. love having to clarify wet hole? <laughs> <laughs> it drives us burnout. Just add or subtract two, you're fine. I know. You need to walk around with it sort of written on your arm. It's, right, uh, right. Yeah, Is that what you have right now? You're just. Oh, I, I, I go straight to the names of the hole. 
I can only use the names of the hole these days. Otherwise, it's just well. There a, you go. That's the cheat mass. sheet, right? Well, the the reason it's become tricky is because not only do you know you can't do the plus and minus two thing because we've got the new hole which has changed right. the routing again. So, so for members, it's become even more of a minefield when trying to describe things. But um, you know, we'll get used to it. All right. So I'm going to ask you to put on your golf history, golf course architecture hat. Okay. And we're going to assume that we had the power to roll back technology like right now to whatever the ideal should be. So distance really isn't a factor. After all of your intensive study of the course, which version of Hoy Lake would you, would be your favorite? Oh, if I had a time machine, I'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any version that you've, we've, we've gone over, what would be your favorite? Well, 35 by virtue of my having studied it like intensely and tried to identify all these, like I said, white blobs and yep. everything else in comparison with the other maps, just to see, you know, I would just love to see it. God, so it'd be I a little bit of cult. It yeah. would be a little bit of membership. Is that correct? I think. Or to be mostly to, cult. If you wanted to draw the pie chart, I would say, I would say the essence, it's like a pizza base, like get you know the, the 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 makings of a an amazing course were already there the routing was solid you know it wasn't like colt was just starting from scratch and rerouting yeah. the place entirely you know the the bones of the thing were there and they were you know they were good um but i think the in the pizza analogy i think what colt did was was more give it its unique tomato sauce and toppings flavor which made it not just pizza but made it a specific type of pizza so I think that's what Colt did, and I would love I would love to see thirty five because I think that would be at its pomp. Um, you know, when Jones had just won in thirty um, pre World War Two, you know, it was really flying at that time. I think it was generally held up as as being a peer with um, with the old course. Um, I know that uh, Herbert Fowler and Simpson and uh, and many others within the industry held it in the same regard. Um, Darwin, obviously, I don't know if you've got the exact quote there, but Darwin's quote about people thinking that Hoylake's not very good, you know, just writes himself down as an ass and everything he says <laughs> henceforth can be disregarded as nonsense. Yeah. Something along those lines. But Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really well loved, um, pre-World War II. I don't think it, it, it stopped being loved, but I think, um, it was at the height of its powers pre-World War II until recently. You know, um, I think people are going to be shocked how many changes have occurred at Royal Liverpool over the years. Were you, were you shocked? Like, let's say, you know, go back to your kid self. You were 12 years old. Obviously you didn't know any better, but like, were you a little bit shocked as you kind of got deeper into the history of all the changes of something that we just, we think of links courses as eternal, which they're not right. I mean, like everything, Presswick, old course. I mean, they've all been changed, but it's constantly, you know, Muirfield even in 1892 has changed um, from the Morris routing. So yeah, but did it shock you how much it has changed over the years? Very, very much. The the almost incessant. Uh, it, it's not. The thing is, the, the funny thing is with changes, like it, it isn't always in you know beauty of hindsight and such. But it isn't always like totally for the better across like 100 percent of the changes that are made suddenly improve the course. Um, nobody goes into changes thinking that they're going to not improve the course you know right. that would be madness but but you know over time certain things uh, the sort of greatest hits come out and the you know the stuff that isn't very good gets 
kind of forgotten about maybe but um but you know listen there's a whole like generation of business called restorations based on just that (laughs) yeah (laughs) right nobody's nobody's trying to like i I mean i look at it very personally like at bel-air nobody tried to destroy the golf course but they happened to accomplish it effectively well (laughs) (laughs) and we finally brought it back and people are like just blown even the members who fought it they're like oh my gosh this is amazing i'm like yeah you know, just trust that Donald Ross got it right. Let's just, if we just bank on that, we'll be okay. I, I love the fact that Hoylake has continued to to blaze a trail, you know, to be ambitious and yeah. open-minded. Um, you, you know, lots of the, as you say, lots of the early Lynx courses uh, in the UK would have, would have been a moving feast, right, you know, right up until, say, 1900 and even beyond. But I think, you know, Hoylake's um, propensity to, to be open to change and new ideas right up to today and, you know, basically never taking their foot off the pedal is massively admirable, um, particularly because I think this erroneous idea that, you know, things are set in stone in yes. time, uh, it just doesn't apply to Hoylake and never has. Um you know, there are other courses that suit that sort of approach much better, I think. Ones that just, they're not interested in hosting, um, you know, major championships and making their course 7,500 yards long and various other things. But, um, you know, I, I just think Hoylake's openness to, to doing things like that is is massively admirable. All right, my last uh, historical tidbit. Technically speaking, Phil Mickelson isn't the oldest winner of a major championship. That honor would go to... Michael Scott, who in 1933 won the Amateur Championship at Hoy Lake at the age of 54. John Ball Jr. won his eighth Amateur Championship at the age of 50 years and six months. On the professional side, Phil Mickelson was 50 years and 11 months old when he won the 2021 PGA Championship. But Michael Scott, not of Dunder Mifflin, (laughs) won his first and last major at the age of 54 years old at Hoy Lake. That's a cool little tidbit that nobody seems to know is that Michael Scott won the amateur championship at the age of 54 at Hoy Lake. That's an interesting one. Indeed. When was the, um, I can't remember when did they start calling them major championships or when they stopped. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, I don't know if there was ever a really true fine line to win. I will say, they were still pretty much considered so in 34 and 35 when lost yeah. little uh, won the little slam, mm-hmm. but probably soon thereafter uh, it kind of fell from fell from grace. Uh, although if you ask Jack Nicholas today, he has 20 major championships, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, two amateurs. I mean, and, and there's been some debate. I can't yeah. remember if it was Phil Mickelson or not, but and and I don't uh, subscribe to this argument because I do consider them a major. Um, yeah. But I think Phil Mickelson. Forgive me if I'm wrong, Phil. Um, said something effective. We should count amateur championships once you've won a professional major. So I don't really like how that would work out, but uh, you know, I, it's My definitely gosh. a major championship. It just happens to be of amateur status. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't. Joe, know. I don't know what I believe. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much again for joining us on Talking Golf History. I know you must be really proud that your club once again is hosting the Open. I believe between the Amateur Championship and the Open, this is the thirty-first major championship of the men's game. And to put that in perspective, folks, if you add in U.S. Amateurs, uh, U.S. Opens, you add in you know Women's U.S. Opens, Oakmont. 
uh, has 20. So that'll give you some idea of the history if we were compare it to something uh, similar on this side of the pond. So thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, Connor. Change in this world is inevitable, and the links of the Open Championship are no different. That being said, I had no idea how much Royal Liverpool had changed over the decades. How many architects have touched this beautiful links? I would like to thank Joe McDonnell and the membership of Royal Liverpool for all that you have done for the game of golf. Before we end our show today, I would also like to thank the membership of Rockford Country Club in Rockford, Illinois, for allowing me to record this podcast from your founder's room. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>